thank you, Lord, for bringing us here this morning to worship your name. It is time to, to hear from you. Pray that your spirit will be at work in me. Pray that you would strengthen me to preach your truth. Pray you will open hearts to hear and, and apply your truth. I pray that even as I speak, that I would listen and, and hear your truth and that, and that the truth would be as applicable to my life as it is to others. Pray that you would be honored and glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There is a common, a common desire in all of humanity when we are faced with troubles or an uncertain future. There's this desire that is common in all of us. The desire is that, the desire is the hope that things will get better. The desire is for a brighter tomorrow. Everyone at some point in their lives has, has hoped that things will get better. Perhaps you may be in that circumstance <clears throat> this morning. And the thing is, you, you don't have to be a Christian to hope. Or you don't have to be a Christian to have hope. You just have to be a person. A cancer patient is hoping that chemotherapy will be effective. The sexual assault victim is hoping that he or she will be believed. And the preacher is hoping that the congregation will actually listen to his sermon. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with these kinds of hope. However, what is common among these kinds of hope is the uncertainty of that hope itself. Chemotherapy may or may not be effective, but hoping that it will be does not make it so. Hoping that it will be will not make it so. But thanks, thanks be to God that Christians have a hope that is certain. Christians has a hope that, that is filled with certainty. It is not a hope in an uncertain future, but instead it is a hope that is grounded in a person, namely Jesus Christ. This hope is our focus for this morning. This hope is what we will look at as we explore our text of John chapter 14, verse 1 through 11. I want to talk to us this morning about this guaranteed hope. If you have your Bible with you, please open to John chapter 4, chapter 14, verse 1 through 11. Do not let your heart be distressed. Trust in God and trust in me. 
There are many rooms in the house of my father. If you were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way to where, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not trust that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words which I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who is dwelling in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. But if not, believe the works themselves. There are three things I would like for us to glean from these 11 verses this morning. And they are one, hope for the troubled heart. Second thing is hope for trouble-free living. And three, proof for such hope. So hope for the troubled heart, hope for trouble-free living, and proof for such hope. In verse 1 of, of our text this morning, we see troubled hearts and we see the hope for the troubled heart. Jesus said to his disciples, do not let your heart be distressed. For as the ESV has it, let not your hearts be troubled. It is legitimate to ask why would Jesus be saying this to his disciples? Why would he comfort them in his moments with those particular words? There are two valid reasons for why in this particular moment Jesus would comfort his disciples. There, there are two valid reasons why the disciples would be troubled in their hearts. One is the impending separation of Christ from them. According to the Gospel of John, Christ has been, has been dropping clues from chapter 7 about his impending death. In verse 8 of chapter 7, Christ said, my time has not yet come. And later in verse 33 of chapter 7, he, he said, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. Now these clues of his death continued up until chapter 13 when he cranked it up a little bit and he mentioned the betrayal by two of his disciples. 
Uh, there is no doubt that the disciples thought that this ministry that they have with Jesus would go for the long haul. And so talks of, of Jesus leaving them must have been distressing. Another reason to, for the disciples to have troubled hearts is the, the fact that there is among them two disciples who would betray Jesus. Judas will betray Jesus by selling him and, and Peter by betraying him. The disciples probably thought if, if two of their fellow disciples uh, could betray Jesus, what is to be said of the rest of them? Their heart is filled with great stress because their master will soon be leaving them. And among them are two, two of their fellow disciples who will betray him. Among them are two of his fellow students, two of his students who will participate in his betrayal. It is not only the disciples that are troubled in their hearts. It is not only, only the disciples that have troubled hearts. What is it that is causing you to be filled with great stress this morning? What is troubling your heart? Is it the state of our national politics? Is it the injustice that you experience around you or the injustice that you see around you? Is it marital conflict? Is it a desire that, that you have and you have not seen the Lord fulfilled just yet? Is it your health or, or maybe it's your, it's your finances that's causing you to be troubled in your heart? Is it the uncertainty of what your future would look like? Or maybe, maybe it is the state of your soul. Commenting on this verse, D.A. Carson said, However appropriate it may be to cite the words, do not let your heart be troubled at Christian funerals, they were first addressed to disciples who under substantial emotional pressure were on the brink of catastrophic failure. The disciples had a troubled heart, and you may too this morning. What then is the hope for this troubled heart? Or what is the hope in the midst of a distressing heart? Before we get to the remedy that Jesus provided, it is also legitimate to ask, is it a bad thing to have a troubled heart? Is it sinful for the heart to be distressed? After all, Jesus' instruction is encouraging the opposite. It tells them, do not let your heart be troubled. Let not your hearts be distressed. Is he saying that to let your heart be distressed is a, is a bad thing in itself? I think if, if that is what he's saying, Jesus would be a hypocrite. Uh, Jesus would be a hypocrite if his intention is to castigate the act of having troubled hearts itself. 
If having troubled heart at all is what Christ is speaking against, it will be inconsistent with his own actions. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus here is experiencing the very same thing that the disciples are experiencing in chapter 14. Uh, The very same thing that you are experiencing, Jesus himself is experiencing. His Howard come, and his soul is distressed from the impending judgment. His soul is troubled from the impending separation between him and Christ. Uh, The very same word uh, that Christ used of himself is the exact same word we see here in chapter 14. You see, Christ understands what you're going through when your hearts are troubled. Christ gets it when you're distressed. Because he too experienced that same very thing. He sympathizes with with your weaknesses. He was tempted, but he did not sin, and thus is able to help in our time of need. Jesus knows how to deal with troubled hearts, precisely because his own heart was also once troubled. What then is the proposed remedy? What is the solution for our hearts when it is troubled? What are the disciples to do with their troubled heart? Jesus' remedy may shock you. It is this. Trust in God. Trust in me also. Jesus told his disciples, believe in God. Believe also in me. This is the exact same thing that Jesus did when Esau was troubled. If we continue in verse 27 of chapter 12, after Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, he goes on to say, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Uh, in, in the moment of his troubled heart, the, the response of Christ was to trust in the Father. The hope in the midst of our troubled hearts is to trust in the one who has all authority. It is to trust in Jesus. It is not a promise that the cause of our troubled heart will be taken away. Now, it is not a promise that trusting in Christ will resolve your distress. After all, Christ still went to the cross and, and died and received the judgment of, of his father. After all, the disciples still were separated from Christ and still experienced the betrayal of two of their fellow disciples. Christ primary concern with these instructions is not with the resolution of our troubled heart, but with consumption. His his primary concern is not with resolution, but with consumption. Are you consumed with your troubled hearts, or will you be consumed with Christ? The hope for your troubled heart is, is not a wishful desire, but 
It is a person who gave up his life on your behalf. It is trust in the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. It is trust in the one who put breath in your lungs, not just once, but twice, so that you may have life. It is trust in the one who knows the end, who knows what the end will be, and, and has promised to keep you. It is trust in the one who makes all things new and brings comfort to the troubled heart. It is trust in the one who says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay it is trust in the one who never slips nor slumber. It is trust in the one who has no beginning nor end of days. Will you trust and rest in Jesus in spite of your troubled heart? Or will you be consumed by your troubled heart? Trusting in Christ is is your guaranteed hope when your heart is troubled. Not because it will resolve it, but because of who he is. If this was all the remedy that Christ offers us in the midst of our troubled heart, we would be all right. If this was all that Christ has to say, it is enough. But he says more. Not only do we have a guaranteed hope for our troubled heart, but we also have a guaranteed hope for a trouble-free living. While Christ isn't promising to resolve our trouble here and now, He is promising us a place where our trouble will be no more. Look with me at verse 2 through verse 4. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus proclaims that his father's house, in his father's house, there, there are tons of rooms. There's enough rooms in, in his father's house for all of those who belong to Christ. No matter your ethnicity, no matter your intellect, no matter your disability, no matter your temptations, there's a room for you, for you in the father's house. And as long as there's a room, You've got a home. Christ is saying that all are welcomed. It doesn't matter who you are. If you belong to Christ, there's a spot for you in the crib. But first, but first, Jesus must go and prepare the place. But first, Jesus must go and make ready the room. The place is already constructed. But Christ must make the proper preparations for us to be able to dwell in that place. How is he making his preparation? How does he go and prepare the place? He's doing so by his death and his resurrection. 
the means by which he prepares this place is by dying and taking upon himself the judgment of God. Uh, this death prepares the place. He prepares the place to, to accept imperfect people on the basis of a perfect sacrifice. No disciples will be allowed into any of the room in his father's house without the sacrifice of the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the earth. His father's house will not accept anyone who comes in on his own account. So Christ must go first and prepare the place. And where exactly is his father's house? It is the heavenly abode. It is the new Jerusalem that is to come. It is the place where John said there will be no more darkness. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. It is a place where all tears will be wiped away. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, mourning nor pain. Christ goes to die so that we may have a guaranteed hope for a trouble-free living. He goes, but one day he will return to receive us to himself. He goes, but one day he will come back to usher us into the heavenly bliss. Our hearts may be troubled through the night, but trouble-free living comes in the morning. Christ goes ahead of us to lay down his life so we may one day enjoy life as he's created us to. It would be eaten again, but much, much better because the tempter would not be there to lure us into sin. His death is our guaranteed hope for a trouble-free living. In verse 4, Christ drops the hammer that as his disciples scrambling. He said to them, and you know the way to where I am going. What follows in verse 5 through verse 11 is Christ giving the proof for the things he's just said. Thomas, he responded to Christ's assertion that, in, that, that they know where he's going by telling Jesus that Jesus is wrong. Thomas said, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? What are you talking about, Jesus? Or perhaps we, we get the impression that Thomas is thinking of a, a literal place on earth where Christ is going. And so here we, we, we kind of see a response. We see the response of a troubled heart. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been a, a proper response for Thomas and the disciples to just take Christ at his word and just trust in him and just believe the things he said? But that is not the case. They want it all figured out in their minds. But it's not just the disciples, is it? We often do the same thing. And it's because the 
the simple idea of trusting in Jesus is just as simple for us. We have to figure, have it all figured out in our mind. A Swiss theologian by the name of Frederick Godet, he commented that although Thomas is the organ of doubting thoughts and discouraged feelings, these thoughts and feelings exist more or less in them all. It is not only Thomas who, who has this, this doubt and thoughts. It is the rest of the disciples. And, it's not, and it, it is not just the rest of, of the disciples. It is each and every one of us. It is not only Thomas who is letting his troubled heart consume him. Well, we do the same thing. But Jesus, being the wise teacher, being the wise teacher that he is, knew what was at the root of Thomas's question. Not just Thomas, but also Philip, as we will, we will see later on in the text. He knew what was at the root of both of their question, and it was unbelief. So Christ moves to give a proof for why the hope for the troubled heart and the hope for the guaranteed for a trouble-free living are, are guaranteed. In Thomas's question, Jesus shows that the hope he offers is, is guaranteed because of his uniqueness. And in Philip's question, he, he shows that it's guaranteed because of his divinity. Looking at the question that Thomas asked, Thomas says, how can we know the way? When we look at that question, it is, it is legitimate, again, to, to wonder, did Christ purposefully make that statement? Did, did Christ purposefully say what he said in verse 4? Knowing that there are pockets of unbelief in the hearts of the disciples, did he proclaim that they already know the way, knowing it will cause them to say, we actually don't know the way? Uh, did he say it because he knew it would provoke a question from them. Pay attention to the response that Jesus gives. In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas' question was, how can we know the way? If Thomas is concerned about where Christ is going and the way to get there, what does the truth and the life have to do with that? Why couldn't Christ have stopped that, I am the way, full stop? Well, what's the deal with him saying that I am the truth and the life? It is because Jesus was intending, he is intending to answer more than what Thomas is asking. He wants his disciples to know that their hope is certain because the one giving that hope is unique and there is none like him. Uh, the one who's giving them this hope is unique in his own right. We have a guaranteed hope for our troubled hearts and for a trouble-free living through Jesus because is the truth of God 
and is the life of God. That makes him unique. It is a, a staggering claim to make that I am the truth and I am the life. But Christ makes it because it is true. The enemy may whisper in your ear about all kinds of lies. But know that the one who gives you hope is full of truth. And he does not lie. He is full of life and is never to die again. Now the only way into that trouble-free living, into the house of the Father, is through Christ. Christ is the way. And, and, and Christ, he knows that, uh, that doubt exists in your heart. Well, he knows that, that doubt exists in your troubled hearts. And, and so he wants you to know that his promise is true because he himself is true. His promise is true because he himself is the truth and there is no one who compares to him. And no one can help you with your troubled hearts like Jesus can. Look at what Jesus did at the end of his response to Thomas in verse 7. He's doing the same thing he did. I'm sorry, in response to Philip um, at the end of, well, yeah, response to, to Thomas, not Philip, we're not at Philip yet. His response to Thomas at the end of verse 7. He's doing the exact same thing that he, he did in verse 4. Christ said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It is good to ask, what does that have to do with Thomas's question about the way? What does knowing the father and seeing the father have to do with Thomas wanting to know about the way? It is because when he says that, he knows it would provoke a, a doubtful response from the disciples. And of course, that's exactly what happens in verse 8 when Philip responds with asking Jesus to show them a sign. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now Philip is saying, if only we can see the Father and then we will believe all that you're telling us. Now that sounds very similar to the unbelieving Jews. They said, if you would show us another sign that you are the Messiah, then we would believe you. And they told Christ when he was being crucified, if you can come down from the cross, then we would believe that you are the Messiah. Philip wants a sign from Christ in order for him to believe that all that Christ has said is, is true. How many times have have you made such statements in the midst of your troubles? Lord, if, if you're real, do such and such for me. It is a mark of unbelief, and Jesus knows that. And so he moves to give a second proof. He moves to give a second proof for this guaranteed hope. Let's look at verse 9. Have I been with you so long? 
and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has sent me has sent the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is the second proof for the guaranteed hope that we have. It is that Christ is one with the Father. It is his divine nature that makes this hope guaranteed. It is this divine nature that makes certain the hope that he offers us. We can trust in Christ with our troubled hearts because he is divine. Uh, we can trust in Christ. Uh, we can hope for a trouble-free living because the one who makes that promise is God himself. Uh, Christ being the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Uh, nothing he does is without the Father. Those are staggering claims to make. And in verse 11, Jesus said, if, if my words aren't enough, look at my works. If you don't believe the things that I'm saying, look at the things that I've done. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on the account of the works themselves. If the words that I'm speaking to you do not penetrate your heart to show you that I am the Son, that I am one with the Father, look at the things that I have done. If your troubled heart is causing you to doubt the promise of God, look at his past works in your life. It is interesting to note that we began in John chapter 14 with the words of Christ that we should trust in him. And we end with those same very words that we should believe in the things that he says. It is only through Christ that we can have a guaranteed hope for our troubled hearts and a guaranteed hope for trouble-free living. This hope is, is guaranteed because Christ is unique and Christ is divine. He's one with the Father and He's the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. If you are an unbeliever this morning, know that this hope is available for you. But first, you must come to Christ today. He's done the work and He's prepared a place for you. It's time to come on home. Will you trust in Christ or will you let your troubled hearts consume you? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have a guaranteed hope for our troubled hearts and a guaranteed hope for a trouble-free living. Our hearts may be troubled through the night, 
but trouble-free living comes in the morning. We pray that in spite of our troubled hearts, we will trust in you. We will trust in you because of who you are. You're unique and you're divine. There is no one who compares to you. Help us in our moment of weakness. Strengthen our hearts to believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.